All right, today we come to the saddest psalm in the Psalter. So it's been described. Because Psalm 88 is for those who suffer with no end in sight. These are for people who are in the dark, they're in the dark tunnel, and they can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. Because unlike uh, many other psalms, there's, there's really not much good here. Now, if you look closely, you will notice some things. But this, this is someone who's suffering, or at least has suffered, with no end in sight. Now, that may not be you, but you need to understand, however, that really no believer is exempt from the trials of life. Just becoming a Christian doesn't mean that everything's going to be good for you. There's no assurance of that. So as long as we're in this fallen world, suffering is a required course when you're in the school of faith. (laughs) You can't skip that class. (laughs) You have to go through it. So rather than being spared pain, Christians are then going to be supported by God through their adversities. No one should be surprised to read in these verses here that the psalmist is undergoing the dark night of the soul. Such difficulty is really common to life as we live in this fallen, sinful world. However, this psalm is different from the other psalms. The psalmist moves through his tribulation, uh, often in the other psalms, to, to then to be restored to at least some state of hope. Even as you read Psalms like Psalm 42 and 43, they talk about their, their struggles, or Psalm 13, but there, there's always hope in those psalms. But that's not the case here in Psalm 88. Here the psalmist remains in his despair. He's unable to shake his deep discouragement. Deliverance had not yet come for him. Neither had spiritual encouragement come for him. Darkness just seems to shroud the psalmist without as well as within his own heart. And he can't seem to shake it. This psalm, as I said, has been nicknamed the saddest psalm in the entire Psalter. And you, if you've read it, you'll know why. This is a song of lament about his desperate cry. It's a very painful prayer of somebody who has possibly been ill at some point or or has been injured since his youth. Because if you look at verse 15 in the psalm, it says, Afflicted and and close to death from my youth up. So, So either he's been ill for a long time or he's been injured since his youth. Not quite sure which it is, but... He's been struggling a long, long time. So throughout his lifetime, he suffered this ill health that's just been followed by unanswered prayers. He's known one disappointment after another. As we we look at this, you'll see all these disappointments. And so because the Psalms speak to all troublesome times of life, this particular Psalm is included here for those who suffer with no end in sight. It's helpful that we have this psalm, but I'm also thankful that it's the only one like it in the Psalter. It's it's hard to read. But if you look at the 
superscription there in Psalm 88. You'll find a few helpful things that might be a little confusing to you. Some of these things uh, we don't often uh, understand, so let's look at the superscription here. First of all, we learn that this is a song. We also learn it, it, there's there's two titles here. Notice the superscription at right next to Psalm 88 says it's a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath, Lenoth, a maskal of Haman the Ezraite. So it's a double title. So let me explain a few things here to you. You'll notice uh, the word Mahalath. Uh, as far as I understand, it could be. Uh, referring to a specific tune or to a musical instrument. The word uh, lenoth means to humble or afflict. So if you kind of combine the ideas there together of those words, you, it, it refers to a dance of affliction. It's describing the despair of this psalm. The second title there, you notice the word mascal. A maskal is just a contemplation by a musician. In this case, you'll notice the musician's name is mentioned here. It's not David. It's not Asaph. It's Haman. Haman was the founder of the choir known as the Sons of Korah. Haman was also, as I mentioned here, is, is an Ezraite. Uh, I learned that Ez, the, the Ezraites were a clan, uh, a part of the tribe of Judah. That's interesting, because often we think of the Levites as, as being involved in the worship in, in the temple. But the Ezraites were a clan in, in Judah that, uh, well, at least Haman here was, was involved in the temple worship. So that's what the superscription tells us. So let's look at this particular song that, that was written by Haman as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Haman faced a crisis. So let's take a look here at the crisis he faced. Starting in verse 1, Psalm 88, verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. We'll stop there for the moment. He's explaining the crisis, a little bit of his crisis that he faced. And notice, first of all, he does at least the right thing. In the midst of his darkness, in this dark time of his soul, he cries to God. If there is anything good in this, 
good news in this psalm, it has to be verse 1. Because notice, he hasn't lost sight of God. Clearly, Haman is a believer. He is a Christian. He, he, he says, this is the God of my salvation. He recognizes that he has salvation through God, from God. God is his God. Yahweh is his God. And he has salvation, and he's crying out. He cries out to God here in verses 1 and 2. So he understands that the only deliverance out of his present troubles has to come from God. And by the way, that's, that's the right response for any one of us who's going through troubles and affliction and suffering. Your only hope is God. Well, such was the desperate outlook of his situation. It's the only ray of hope here in the entire psalm. And notice, by the way, how often he's crying out to God. Verse 1 says, he's, I'm crying out day and night before you. In other words, he, he's praying without ceasing. <laughs> However, though, he, he feels as if he's not being heard by God. He had been praying, but there was no answer. That's how he feels there in verse 2. And, and you read on, he feels like, uh, just there's no answer. His unanswered petitions just left the impression that God was, was not listening, that somehow God had turned a deaf ear to his pleas. And so as you read on in verses 3 through 7, he feels as if God is crushing him. He was crushed by God. Well, in what ways do we see that? In verses 3 through 7, well, in verse 3, he, he's, you get this idea. He, he's saying, my life is near death. That's the idea. My life is near death. When he says, my life drawing near to Sheol. Sheol was the Hebrew word for, for the grave or death. So this trouble cannot be specifically identified, but it was life-threatening. At least that's the way he felt about it. Uh, he goes on to verse 4 to say, my life is weak. My life is weak. That's the idea there in verse 4 when he says, I'm a man who has no strength. And so this verse is reinforcing here the seriousness of his peril. The word pit, by the way, is a, a reference to the grave. And so he doesn't have the strength to go any farther. You ever felt that way? Never felt like you just didn't have the strength? It's a moment of despair and affliction in your life. It's hard, very hard. Well, that's how he feels. And in verse 5, he says, My life is forgotten. It, as if he'd already had one foot in the grave, if you will. He's resigned to this hopeless fact. The, the idea is he's saying, I'm set apart with the dead. I am set apart with the dead. Wow, that's a terrible outlook, isn't it? And from his perspective, death's going to cut him off from God's care to be remembered by God no more. That's his perspective. And so as you can see, the psalmist felt utterly forsaken by God in verse 5. And then in verse 6, he says, my life is darkened. My life is darkened. I mean, the psalmist believed God was the one who had brought this trial and so that's why he says there, you, God, he's referring to God, you have put me in the pit. 
And so the emphasis is upon the, the you. And so he means God there when he says that. And so illustrating his point, the psalmist is making this graphic reference to death and the grave is the lowest pit in the darkest depths. In other words, I'm down there with the worms. I can't get any lower. And then in verse 7, he says, my life is afflicted. So these are all ways of showing he's being crushed by God. Did you notice how often he talks about you, he, he, God, you, you're the one who's doing this to me. He's afflicted, and he assumes this trouble is coming from God. He needs to be disciplined or chastened somehow in some way. And and that's why he's saying there in verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me. And so his terrible circumstances had overwhelmed him, and he's using this imagery of these really large waves just breaking over him, and, and, and he's feeling like he's just getting pounded by the surf, and he's drowning in deepest despair. So he was crushed by God, verses 3 through 7. But we see in verses 8 through 9, he was constrained by God. The first thing he mentions there in verse 8 is, my friends are removed from me. My friends are removed. In verse 8 he says, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. So there's this increasing discouragement going on here, and he's lamenting what what is happening with his friends. In other words, he's blaming God for taking away his friends. Therefore, he feels like he's suffering alone. You ever suffered alone? Uh, By the way, it's bad enough to suffer, but when you... You feel like you're suffering alone? It just makes it all the worse, doesn't it? It's like when, you, when, you're, when you're sick during the middle of the night. It's a horrible time to be sick because everybody else is sleeping. You're all alone. You're, you're bowing before the porcelain god or whatever. You know, you're throwing up in the toilet and nobody knows what really is going on with you. And you feel terrible and it's dark. and It's a terrible time, isn't it? Well, he, he's feeling this way, but magnified even worse. He's lost the support of his friends in all ways. And in fact, he, as it says there, he was in fact the horror of his friends. The idea is there, in other words, he's being, uh, his friends considered him repulsive to be around, to, to, to maybe even look at. They were repulsed, and so they're hiding from him. And in, in verse 8, uh, we see he, he's basically saying, my goings are restricted. So he's confined by his surrounding troubles. And therefore, he's, he could not escape to find relief. And that really, it leads into verse 9, where he says, my eyes are wasted. The idea of his eyes being wasted is it's, it's a result of his crying, apparently. He's been crying so much, his continuous crying caused his eyes to swell up just as a result of all his sorrows. And as you read on in verse 9, he says, my prayers are wasted. My prayers are wasted. Well, at least he's, he's called out to Yahweh, but there seemed to be no answer. By the way, let me remind you, God does answer prayer, but... It's not always, he doesn't always answer with a yes. 
you may want him to answer with a yes, but God will answer prayers with a yes. Sometimes it might be no. Sometimes it might be wait. I think in this case, the answer did come, but God's answer for him was wait. So he felt his prayers were wasted. And so he does the right thing again. He cries out to God here in verses 10 through 12. And look how he presents this case to God. He presents his case before God in, in question form. I think it's kind of the, the, the most, probably most respectful way you could do this to God is doing it in, in, a, in a question format. And look what he says here in verse 10. Verse 10. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Now we'll stop there for a moment because if you notice the very next verse starts with a but. <laughs> It'll show some contrast here for us. But notice the case that he presented before God. Wisely, I think he does it in, as he's appealing to God. He's using these questions. And I'll put them kind of reworded on the screen here for you. But he's, in the first one there in verse 10, he says, Will you deliver the dead? In other words, God, how can you show your saving acts toward me if you're going to wait until I'm dead? Kind of late then, isn't it? <laughs> That's what he's thinking. You know, why don't you help me now while I'm still alive? Thank you very much. Yeah, I can understand that way of thinking. And then as he moves on to the second one, he says, is, will the dead praise you? He knew he couldn't praise God, at least on earth, if he's in the grave. <laughs> you know, his, his mouth's not going to be moving. Nobody's going to hear him if he's in the grave. And so he pleaded with God to preserve his life. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But you, you, can't, you need to understand, you can't make God do anything. You can respectfully pray and beseech Him and, and ask, but God's the one who's in control here. The third question is this, will you be made known in death? Good question. He could not declare God's faithfulness to, to people here on earth if He's dead, right? If you're in heaven, well, you can declare God to people in heaven, but you can't do that to people on earth. And so the case is basically this. God, if I die, then I'm not going to be able to make you known to the world. Does that make sense? That's basically his case that he's presenting. And as we move on, we're going to see his confusion here. And So let's look at the confusion that Haman felt starting in verse 13. He says, But I, O Lord, or Yahweh, cry to you in the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Yahweh, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me, your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. 
my companions have become darkness. Wow. As you see in verses 13 and 14, he's again crying to God. He's praying. Again, there's no relief in sight here for the psalmist, but he is praying to God. But again, no answer came. There was no response from God, and so as a result, he's confused. He, he hopefully believes that God is good, that God is faithful, but what he believes about God doesn't seem to be matching up with his own experience. That ever happened to you? It's a confusing time when what you believe about God doesn't match up with your own experience. It, that can be a very dark night of the soul. So what do you have to do? You've you got to keep holding on to God. Don't lose sight of God. You've got to go back to the Scriptures and say, do, do what I believe about God actually match up here in the Scriptures? Maybe your confusion is, is some bad theology. Maybe you got some bad advice from somewhere. So he's confused. And the more he prayed, the more he seemed to be refused by God. And the silence from heaven was deafening. It was discouraging for him. And there are several things we can see here about his confusion. First of all, uh, we see in verses 15 to 18, he, he says, I am afflicted by God. He believes that he was afflicted by God. And we see all the various afflictions mentioned here in verses 15 to 18. Notice, first of all, he, he believed that he suffered deeply. He believed he suffered deeply. Verse 15 is not encouraging when he says, Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Bad news. By the way, did you notice there? He says how long he had suffered. He, he says from his youth up. And so this rejection for him had been a lifelong experience, at, at least so he felt at the moment of the writing anyway. And so his present suffering was a long-standing pattern for him. And notice he mentions where the suffering came from. Over and over again, he's saying that here. It's coming from God. He also goes on in verse 16 to say that he was destroyed painfully. And the imagery there is like a wave again, just crashing upon his helpless soul. And so that's why he's saying, your wrath has swept over me. You ever been out in the surf and had waves hit you? It can be a frightening thing. Or if you've ever gone down... A, uh, a river, maybe tried whitewater rafting or kayaking or something like that, and you get, you get caught in that water. Water is powerful. It can trap you under rocks. It can, it surf can pound you down and keep you down, and some people drown as a result of that. And he feels like he's drowning. And it left him drowning in despair in this situation. So that's why he's, he's saying there in verse 16, your dreadful assaults destroy me. He's just done. And in verse 17, he says that he's engulfed completely. Nothing left. He totally submerged in sorrow. He's unable to surface to the life-sustaining air of hope. There's no hope here in this psalm. 
other than the fact he's crying to God, he, he hasn't forgotten that God is his salvation. And then in verse 18, he's isolated entirely. Totally isolated. And so the psalm again claims here the Lord had turned his friends against him. So there in verse 18, he, he's saying, you've caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. So according to verse 8, this isolation was because he was repulsive to their sight. So maybe he's had some sort of an illness. Maybe he needs to be in quarantine. And so his, his friends don't even want to look at him. Maybe they, maybe they can't look at him because he is in quarantine. I don't know all the reasons here, but he, he's concluding, my, my companions have become darkness. Did you notice it ends with the word darkness? And by the way, this darkness alluded to his despair and his depression. He seems near death. Such was the hopelessness that he felt. By the way, he doesn't die. <laughs> uh, he goes on to serve God. We praise God for that because he, Haman ends up serving there, the, the choir in Jerusalem. But he felt hopeless. He was engulfed in this darkness of despair. He felt like there was no light of hope at all. Which brings me to what I think the theme of Psalm 88 is. I'll put it on the screen here for you. That sometimes God fills a Christian's life with trouble. Even mature Christians. Even somebody who can go and start a choir, in this case the Sons of Korah choir in Jerusalem, and minister in God's temple in Jerusalem, can have their life filled with trouble. So let me ask you this question as we, we think about this psalm. Is darkness the final word? It is the final word in my text of Scripture. By the way, it is all... Darkness is also the final word in the Hebrew text, which is why the English Standard Version has translated it as darkness. But we've got to think about this. Is darkness the final word? Well, Haman's last word in the text is darkness. And we need to understand that it doesn't need to be that way for us, though. Darkness doesn't need to be the last for us. See? If somebody repents of their sin and they come to God through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, then the darkness of hell is not something that we need to anticipate. We, as believers, if we are believers and we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone, we can look forward to the light of heaven then, can't we? If we believe the gospel and we receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, not only is the future changed from darkness to light, but God also changes our past, and then we can look forward to even, a, even the present is changed. And there is hope. Well, with darkness as the final word in the text, we've got to ask this question, what is the role of this psalm in Scripture? Unlike all the other laments in the Psalter, there's there's given no real hope. So what is the role of the psalm in the Scripture? Well, for really beginning to answer that question, 
I can't fully answer the question, but to begin to answer the question, I've drawn a few quotations from a helpful commentary, the Tyndale Old Testament commentary written by Derek Kidner. And then I'll just kind of I'll throw in a few of my own comments here. But uh, I, I found these incredibly helpful in trying to think about what, what is the, the point of the psalm and how, how can it be helpful to us. Well, here's the first one. Psalm 88 is a witness to the possibility of unrelieved suffering as a believer's lot. The happy ending of most psalms of this kind is seen to be a bonus, not a due. All right, so remember that. There'll be times where you're, you're going through affliction, and God's going to bring this affliction into your life, and you're, you're not going to see the light at the end of the tunnel. You need to remember psalms like this. Unrelieved suffering is a believer's lot. Suffering is what we deserve. So if we're not suffering, then that's only by God's grace. See, too many people think they deserve health, wealth, and prosperity. And so through this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that's being preached around the world, too many people have come to think it's what they deserve. No, my friend, you deserve hell. You don't deserve God's grace and mercy. So it includes even unrelieved suffering. It's what we deserve. And if we're not getting it, it's by God's grace. And so even after we become Christians, it doesn't mean that, that automatically then all the thorns in, amongst the roses are going to be removed. Most of us still feel, though, that God owes us some happiness or we deserve the easy life. But we're not owed an easy life. Withholding of such a life from God's people, by the way, is no proof that, that you're sinning. Remember when you read the book of John, there, there was this belief in Jesus' day. People thought, well, you know, this boy, this, this man's blind. Why is he blind? Well, there's, there's some sin in his life. Right? He's blind. He's suffering because of sin. Remember, Job's friends kind of thought that way too. Job's suffering because of sin, so he just needs to repent, and then everything's going to be okay. Right? A lot of people think that way. Well, no. Just because God is withholding happiness and the easy life from you doesn't mean that God is looking at you with displeasure. And by the way, it goes the other way around too. Just because you do have an easy life and God is blessing you is, doesn't necessarily mean that you are living a holy life before God. See, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's God's common grace. God blesses even unbelievers. But it doesn't mean He approves of everything about them. But Psalm 88 is a witness to the possibility of unrelieved suffering as a believer's lot. And number two, the psalm forbids us to accept the present order as final. Praise God, this is not the final. See, in spite of the kind of suffering that's described here in Psalm 88, the Bible teaches there is a moral order in the universe. 
And, and we can look forward to things balancing out and, and evil and the final redemption is going to come. I love Psalm 88 uh, for that, to think about it in that way. Because Psalm 88 is a sharp reminder of Romans 8 to me. Psalm, uh, Romans, sorry, Romans 8 says that we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8 talks about how the earth and this universe is groaning for that day of redemption, for the King, King Jesus to come back, for the Creator of the universe to come back and set all things right again, for paradise to be restored. Well, it will one day. But until then, we wait. We wait. So the psalm forbids us to accept the present order is final, because it's not. It's not. We live in a fallen world. Your body is fallen. Everything around you is fallen in a sinful state, and it's groaning. But King Jesus is going to change it one day. Number three, this author, like Job, does not give up. He completes his prayer, still in the dark and totally unrewarded. The taunt, does Job fear God for nothing, is answered yet again. And so like Job, here we see the authors received no satisfactory answer for why. Job asked God why at least 17 times. God never answered his why question. When you come to the end of Job, what does God answer? He answers the who question. God says, who am I? So he takes chapter 38 and 39, and you move on into the last few chapters, and eventually Job, after seeing all these amazing creatures that God's made and what God's doing, Job just covers his mouth and he says, I have nothing to say. Wise move, Job. Wise move. <laughs> you don't need to know the why question. Well, neither did Haman. Haman didn't need to know why. He just needed to know who. And so like Job, he does not curse God and die. He doesn't say that. But rather, what, is it we, what do we see the psalmist here doing? The, the, the same thing you and I need to do when we are being afflicted. We need to cling to God and pray to God Keep doing that all the way to the end. And number four, the author's name allows us, with hindsight, to see that his rejection was only apparent. His existence was no mistake. There was a divine plan bigger than he knew and a place in it reserved most carefully for him. So if you look at your little superscription in your Bible, it mentions his name, Haman. Haman was an Ezraite. He was a clan, a clan in the tribe of Judah. Haman was a leader in the temple worship of God before his people Israel. He was a leader of this choir of the sons of Korah. So what we see here in this psalm is not the end. And God did use him in great ways. So his rejection was... Only apparent. God hadn't lost sight of him. He felt like God had lost sight of him, but God hadn't. So his existence wasn't a mistake. What, what God had taken him through was not a mistake. 
God had a divine plan, and he was fulfilling that plan. So probably to his surprise, this painful psalm of lament is included uh, along with all the other happier songs that you sing and we, we see in psalms. But praise God for this saddest of all psalms. But I'm also thankful it's the only one. <laughs> so my friends, we need to understand that no Christian is immune from times of major discouragement. In fact, we probably should see it as, as discouragement, as something normal for Christians to go through. Jesus said we shouldn't be surprised by tribulation. And so in spite of all the many high times on the mountaintops, we need to recognize we often don't get to stay there. Often there's valleys, as Psalm 23 says. We, we go through the valley of the shadow of death, but the good news is God is there. We have no reason to fear. So there are low seasons in the valley, and that's true, by the way, for every Christian, even for mature Christians like Haman. So accordingly, this lament song is revealing just how discouraged a true believer can become. And so in the midst of adversity, God's people often have to persevere, and we have to do it with unshakable faith in God. It's the only way you're going to get through it. The only way. So this psalm has a reality to it that makes it relevant to everyone's life. We're all going to suffer in some way or another. So it's relevant. And it is in such difficult times that the believer has to turn to God for strength. He literally is your strength, other psalms say. So what an encouragement to know that God's grace is always sufficient. As Paul prayed in Corinthians chapter 12, you remember that prayer he prayed three times for God to remove that thorn in his flesh. And God answered, no, no, no. My answer is no. Why? Paul, you need to be humble. Your very nature is to be proud, so you need the thorn in the flesh to humble you. And in the process, I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to be exalted. Everyone, including you, will see my grace magnified as you suffer with this thorn in the flesh. And so we need to be encouraged. As you and I are afflicted, God's the one doing it. God's in charge. He's working something out for our good and His glory. And we can be encouraged that God's grace is always sufficient for whatever He does bring into our life. 